Rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, African leaders hail Zimbabwe's former president Robert Mugabe and South Africa's president deploys on special envoys to African countries. In economics news, U.S. Auto Workers Union calls for strike at General Motors. And in sports news, South African Davis Cup team win their first round tie against Bulgaria. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. At least 36 people are missing after a boat capsized in the Congo River on the outskirts of Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Police say 76 passengers were rescued from the whale boat. The vessel carrying passengers and cargo had departed from Mai Ndombe province in Congo's northwest and was bound for Kinshasa when it sank. Police say the cause of the accident remains under investigation. Thousands of members of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church have staged protests in Amhara State, saying there's been a series of recent attacks targeting churches, some of which have been set on fire. The BBC's Pakidani Patol reports. Thousands of people took to the streets of the historic city of Gwander, as well as in three other cities of Amhara State, to condemn recent attacks the protesters condemned the Ethiopian government for failing to offer protection and they also want compensation to rebuild the damaged church. Whilst religious violence is fairly rare in Ethiopia, ethnic divisions are a major problem and some of the ethnic fault lines mirror the religious differences. The body of former Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe is expected to arrive in his childhood village of Kutuma for a wake. The funeral service for the Zimbabwean statesman took place on Saturday with South African President Cyril Ramaphosa apologizing to the crowd at the National Stadium in Harare for the violence against foreign nationals in his country. The family of Mugabe says it has fond memories of him as a young boy growing up at Kutuma. His cousin Augustine Chadikwa says Mugabe showed early signs of leadership. You, you used to plow with him, heading, heading cattle, tying, tying some oxen. We went together at the field. Then from there, there was what, we, what is known as Doro. Doro is a, a place where rice is grown. I was, I was steering cattle. He used to get hold of the, the hole. Then we plowed. After plowing, from there, we, we came home. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta has paid a glowing tribute to the former Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe. Kenyatta spoke at Mugabe's funeral service that was held at Harare's National Stadium. He fondly remembered how Mugabe had visited his country and many on the continent, all in an effort to encourage African solidarity. 
Comrade Mugabe will be remembered as a Pan-Africanist and a great icon of African liberation who selflessly dedicated his life to the emancipation of Zimbabwe and Africa. He was a visionary leader and a relentless champion of African dignity. And finally, the African Diaspora Forum says while it's relieved at the sudden calm in, in South Africa, it fears that the end of the attacks on foreign nationals may be short-lived. The chairperson of the ADF, Vuzumusi Sibanda, says the South African government has shown little concern for the lives of immigrants in the country. Twelve deaths have been confirmed by police since the unrest broke out. Ten of these were South Africans and two foreign nationals. Last week, hundreds of Nigerians fled the country on a specially organized flight. Sibanda says the Ramaphosa administration needs to do more. We know that this did not stop, obviously, at the instance of the government here standing up and doing something about it. So we know it's only short-lived. We feel very strongly that the mere fact that government has been absent in dealing with this particular sketch per se, and in fact the government has been saying this is criminality. We are shocked that the government has sent an envoy out to go and apologize. No government would go and apologize for criminal acts in its own country. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Zimbabwean politicians, international dignitaries and thousands of citizens gathered at a stadium in Harare to pay their final respects to the country's founding father, Robert Mugabe. The state funeral in the capital on Saturday followed a week of disputes between the Mugabe family and the government over where the former president will be laid to rest. Mugabe's nephew told mourners that the former strongman was a sad, sad, sad man in the last days of his life. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. Former Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe died on the 6th of September in Singapore following months of illness. Mugabe, who died at 95, is yet to be buried due to a huge fight between government and his family. The fight is partly due to the fact that Mugabe was not happy with the manner power was wrestled from him in November 2017 by trusted lieutenants such as Emerson Munangagwa and General Constantino Chuenga. During a funeral service at the National Sports Stadium in the capital on Saturday, Mugabe's nephew, Walter Chidakwa, broke down and said, Uncle Bob, as he was known, died a sad man. I will not say, and I spent lots of time with him. Towards the end of his life, he was a sad man. Sad. Sad. Sadness. He recalled quietly the journey that he had walked, a profound journey, a hard and excruciating journey. It has emerged Mugabe had two opposing characters, the good and the bad. Hence, even in his death, tensions are very high. 
is buried or and arrangements have been changed a numerous times, with the family spokesperson Liam Gabe declaring burial will be at the National Shrine in a mausoleum, the first at the Heroes Acre. However, amid all the burial drama, 11 African leaders, several former heads of states, and other dignitaries paid their last respects on Saturday. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta described Mugabe as an African leader. As an African leader, as well as an intellectual giant, he was firm and steadfast regarding Africa's quest to address the challenges facing the continent. He was unwavering in his insistence that Africa's problems demanded African solutions. Former Ghanaian leader Jerry Rowling said Mugabe was steadfast. From his fledging years as a politician until the twilight of his time, he never lost his oratory skills and sharpness of wit. It is doubtful if his most rapid critics could fold his dialectic deductions and power to convince. Speaking on behalf of Tanzanian leader, the deputy president Samia Hassan Suluhu said Africa had lost a great son of the soil. What remains with us is to continue where he ended. Indeed, former President Mugabe's spirit, determination, statesmanship, sense of humor, and ideas in emancipating the region will inspire us forever. Fare thee well, comrade, and may his soul rest in eternal peace. Amen. Long live the memory of Comrade Robert Mugabe Mugabe. Long live the people of Zimbabwe. Wayeta Shako. Thank you very much. Asante Nisan. Meanwhile, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa was booed by Zimbabweans for xenophobia in his country and was forced to apologize. On one hand, Mugabe will be buried within 30 days, a decision that changed a lot of things related to his burial. On Sunday, Mugabe's body was expected to be flown to his rural home in Zimba, 80 kilometers west of Harare, and that too was postponed, signaling a huge rift between government and the Mugabe family. It was alleged Grace Mugabe had fallen sick, hence the changes on Sunday. Mugabe becomes the first man to be buried at the National Shrine in Harare differently in a mausoleum. his nephew Leo Mugabe explained. There are a few changes in the sense that uh, the body will now come to more. I've not been given the reasons as to why they are no longer coming to them. But I should imagine that there must be a good reason that the postponement. Robert Mugabe, the controversial man in his life, remains controversial even in his death, some Zimbabweans are saying. In Harare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. The family of former Zimbabwe's president, Robert Mugabe, says he died a bitter man who felt betrayed by his own party, ZANU-PF, as according to the cousin of the late Robert Mugabe, Augustine Chidakwa. In an exclusive interview with SABC News at his home village of Kutama at Mashonaland West, Chidakwa says this sense of betrayal among the family led to difficulties in the organizing with the Mnangagwa administration of ceremonies following Mugabe's death. Abongile Dumago has more.
Residents of Kudama village and surrounding areas at the Mashona Land West province of Zimbabwe converged at the Mugabe residence to honor the late former president Robert Mugabe. This as they await to see the body of the late former president of their country arrive at his rural home today. They then have a church service. Many say they have been at his home since he passed away in Singapore last week. As per their tradition, daily prayer sessions are taking place. Some of the locals have thanked Mugabe for his central role in liberating their country. Robert Mugabe led us to the independence of this country in 1980. It was not easy to defeat the, the President Robert Mugabe is the son of the soil. So the, the number one is to unite his family. Uh, I also thank Mugabe for the tribalism, fight for tribalism. Authorities and family members are still discussing how to preserve the body of the late former Zimbabwean president until his burial in around a month's time. The family had wanted to conduct traditional ceremonies in Mugabe's home village in the Zimba area. A site is also being prepared for Mugabe's body at Hero's Acre in Harare. Family spokesperson is Leo Mugabe. The body was supposed to come today. And I've been informed by Chief Simba that, you know, that has been postponed to tomorrow. So what will happen to the body? It will be preserved. What kind of preservation, you know, the chiefs were going to sit today to determine. Because, uh, you see, a long time ago, traditionally, when people get old, very old, eh, they would dry them and put them in a cave. It's whether they are going to dry or they are going to preserve uh, using chemicals, uh, that is still to be decided. But the Mugabe family is still bleeding since he was removed from office in 2017. His cousin Augustine Chidagwa says the party Mugabe belonged to, the ZANU-PF, betrayed him as the family. They want to be compensated for that. They must compensate to our family what they did. It's like killing someone. When you kill someone, you must compensate. An apology wouldn't be enough. They must pay Mombe. They must. Otherwise, we are, not, we are not happy about it. The family will now perform rituals and traditions bidding a son of the soil farewell. He will be buried at the National Heroes Acre in Harare in 30 days from now, I am Abongile Tumago in Kutama, Zimbabwe. Highfields, an old high-density suburb in Harare, Zimbabwe, has been the theatre where former President Robert Mugabe's rise and fall has played out. While on the fringes of the capital city, it was at the heart of Zimbabwe's fight against the racist Ian Smith regime. Busi Chimombe looks at the area's proud history. The bullet holes still mark the walls of 4475 Jabavu Street, Highfields, Harare. This was the home of the late Robert Mugabe in the 1960s and 70s. His neighbors remember his stay there well. This house was a war zone, and in the fighting, people would find a way to run through my yard to the extent that my fence ended up flattened to the ground. And for our part, we would cook early around 5 o'clock and push the wardrobe against the window to sleep. 
Down the road on 11th Street lived the founder of the Zimbabwe African People's Union, Zapu, the late former Zimbabwe Vice President, Joshua Ngomo. The current owner remembers Highfields in the 1970s. Joshua Ngomo, who is a president, Vice President of this country, he also lived here for some time. And uh, the next door, I'm told, uh, Comrade Nathan Shamarira also lived there and President Robert Mugabe some, some distance away from here. Ruth Chinamano, the wife of Josiah Chinamano, lived here, and all those people you know, from South Africa who are politicians. Living amongst the locals were cadres of the ANC and the PAC who were working with the local activists of ZAPU and ZANU-PF to overthrow apartheid and Ian Smith's Rhodesia regime. Former President Tabombeki has fond memories. We spend a lot of time here in various parts of Harare because this is where the leadership was and this is where we did all the planning and all the interaction with the party, with the government. So for me, the Harare is home. Former Zimbabwean government spokesperson Bright Matonga says Highfields was a hotbed of radicalism. Highfields was the breeding ground for nationalism. For, for, for Zimbabweans, that's where ZANU, ZANU was formed, uh, that's where meetings, ZAPU, they used to have meetings, so it was the hotbed, they produced uh, a lot of uh, our fighters, it produced a lot of academics, so it is very important, it is very key in, in Zimbabwe, just like Soweto. In 1980, just six weeks before independence, an estimated 200,000 people descended on Highfield Zimbabwe grounds to greet Mugabe on his return from exile in Mozambique. It was the largest rally by a political party in then Rhodesia's history. Mugabe at the time said he was overwhelmed. I felt extremely delighted, overwhelmed by um, the whole event. It was really fantastic. I hadn't expected it. Um, I knew our people supported us. I knew they supported the struggle, but I didn't appreciate the extent to which they would go in welcoming me back. The area has not dimmed its revolutionary zeal. Today, he must go today, not tomorrow. Want him to go today. The Highfields grounds was the venue for another massive rally organized by the Zimbabwe National Liberation War Veterans Association against President Mugabe's continued stay in office on the 18th of November 2017. Two days later, Mugabe had fallen. Highfields, like many of Zimbabwe's townships and suburbs, has fallen into disrepair. But its proud history remains a source of pride for both its residents and Zimbabweans alike. That report by Busich Mombe in Harare, Zimbabwe. In each and every one of us, there, there is, is a purpose and grace. We were all meant to shine. It is up to an individual to, to realize, realize that purpose. Don't ever let somebody tell you. You can't do something. Join me, Amanda Machaga, on Life by Design, where I will be talking to people who share their journey on how they discovered their purpose with the hope to inspire you to, to live, live your life, life by, by design. design. Tune in to Life by Design for your dose, dose of Monday, Monday motivation every Monday at 8 a.m. Central African time and at 2 a.m. the following day. Life, life by, by design, design, be the architect of your life. life. Only on Channel Africa, be African, be African perspective. perspective. 
A team of special envoy appointed by South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has been sent throughout the continent in an attempt to repair the damage caused by recent attacks on foreign nationals in the country. The team, comprising of former Energy Minister Jeff Khadebe, Ambassador Kingsley Mamabulo and Dr. Kulumbata, will visit Nigeria, Niger, Ghana, Senegal, Tanzania, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Zambia. Nomelizo Mandela filed this report. Attacks on foreign nationals are by no means applied on South Africa standing on the continental and international stage, and government is working hard to restore the country's reputation. President Cyril Ramaphosa has appointed a team led by veteran politician Jeff Hadebe to explain to some of the countries whose citizens were affected in the attacks that South Africa belongs to all who lives in it. The president said the country's image was battered by these attacks. Our image, our standing has been dented. I've taken steps to send envoys around various parts of the continent. The former minister Jeff Khadebe is going to Nigeria and to West Africa. I've sent him as an envoy and I'm sending other envoys to other parts of the continent, to the AU, to various countries, to go and explain to them what has happened and also to offer our apologies and for those who have been killed, our condolences and those who have been injured as well. So we will be trying to repair the damage that has been caused by all this. Addressing thousands of congregants at the Grace Bible Church in Soweto on Sunday, President Ramaphosa said a not so good positive response to South Africa was evident at the funeral service of the former Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe in Harare, where he was booed and heckled as a result of his countrymen's attacks on foreign nationals. I was in Zimbabwe. As many of you will have seen, we were at a ceremony to bury the late President Robert Mugabe. And uh, as you will have seen, people did not respond very positively to what has been happening in our country. And I was telling my colleagues that I've been booed twice. And yesterday it was the whole stadium. But at the same time, we had to offer a national apology because what has happened has really led to what I call our national shame. Shame because the people of the continent have not expected this of South Africa. He also thanked the Grace Bible Church for its effort on helping the affected communities and on forging social cohesion. The continent expects leadership from South Africa. And that leadership has to be exercised by all of us. It's not only the president speaking about that. I would like to acknowledge and applaud the leadership that has been displayed by the bishop here in this church. The bishop was briefing me about the outreach ministry they've been involved in. They even went to the areas where those people who've been displaced are now living at in the various halls in Ekuruleni. And he also told me that they will be also reaching out to Pretoria where we've had similar incidents. The president also weighed in on the recent spate of gender-based violence, saying he has called a joint sitting of parliament to come up with effective ways to deal with this scourge. Gender-based violence is a national crisis and it is the reason why I've decided to call for a joint sitting. We've got to address it. Every day we hear of the killing of children, the killing of women, the raping of women, and this has to stop. So therefore I want this National Assembly as well as the Council of Provinces to get together to discuss this matter and we must come up with uh, interventions. The women of our country have said we must declare it as a national emergency. 
I want Parliament to discuss that, to come up with the interventions that will give it that urgency that we need to deal with. President Ramaphosa and some top ANC officials also visited some parts of Johannesburg to engage communities on the attacks on foreign nationals and violence against women and children. I am Tebumokobo in Soweto. South Africa's President Sil Ramaphosa has called an extraordinary joint sitting of Parliament on Wednesday to discuss the scourge of gender-based violence. Parliament says Ramaphosa invoked Section 84 of the Constitution and the Joint Rules of Parliament to address members of the NCOP and National Assembly on special business. Mercedes Percent reports. Parliament spokesperson Manelisi Olela says both National Assembly Speaker Tandi Mudise and National Council of Provinces Chairperson Amos Masondo have received President Ramaphosa's letter to address a joint sitting. The President has articulated very clearly that the matter to be discussed uh, incidents of violence that have uh, engulfed South Africa, particularly over the last few weeks. And in his letter he says it has to be a responsibility of every individual in South Africa and every institution to come together and use the recent spate of violence against women and children as a fundamental turning point in fighting and defeating the scourge of gender-based violence in South Africa. Delegates of the NCOP will have to return to Parliament for Wednesday's special joint sitting. NCOP members were expected to be away in provinces for the entire week. Holela explains. This now has an impact on the National Council of Provinces' uh, flagship program, which is called the Provincial Week of Taking Members and Permanent Delegates of the NCOP to all provinces in advancing service delivery in the sense that on Wednesday that program will be suspended to enable all permanent delegates and delegates of the NCOP to attend the joint session which is called by the President on Wednesday the 18th of September. And while President Ramaphosa has called for a joint sitting of Parliament to address gender-based violence, the role of men and their voices against this crime continue to draw attention. The President and the Speaker Tandi Mudise are among those who have called on men to take the lead in combating violence against women and girls. Mudise recently questioned whether male MPs have done enough to denounce the wrongs done by other men in society. Speaking during a parliamentary strategic planning session a few days ago, Mudise said an activist parliament should go beyond the debates in the House and the receiving petitions from society. She wants the voices of male parliamentarians to be heard strongly. We've had a debate in the House, yes, but have we come out as parliament, as parties, to actually address the nation and say we, it's not in our name, it's not our image, it cannot be perpetuated. Have we, other than Daten Tombela, had men in parliament coming out to say that's not the role of a man in a South African society? When he recently addressed the nation in a televised message, President Ramaphosa said violence against women and girls should be led by men. Violence against women is a man's problem. It is men who rape and kill women. There is therefore an obligation on the men of our country to act to end such behavior and such crimes. As men, let us speak out. We must not look away. We must face gender-based violence head on. Let us as families make sure that we raise boys to respect women, to respect themselves, to value life and human dignity. 
would like to acknowledge the men and the boys who have heeded the call to respect women by participating in the Dagwani Riime men's and boys campaign. We also acknowledge others who are championing change towards a South Africa that is free of violence towards women by 2030. The president is expected to address the nation again through a joint sitting of parliament on Wednesday, where he is expected to further articulate his position on the scourge of gender-based violence in South Africa. That report by Mercedes Percent. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantaya. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Tune in to Vision 2030 with Ona Pateke and Tabila Masugu, the new show revolving around the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. Every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m. Central African Time. Connect with us on all social media platforms at Channel Africa One. Hashtag Vision 2030. It's 7.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, the family of late former Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe say they want to be compensated by his party ZANU-PF. At least 36 people are missing after a boat capsized in the Congo River in the outskirts of Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And thousands of members of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church have staged protests in Amhara State, saying there's been a series of recent attacks targeting the churches. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. It's 7.31 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The public silence on violence against women in South Africa has been shattered in the past week. It has been the dominant topic of conversation in media, on the streets, in mass protests, and on all forms of social media. In an important attempt to generate more of these vital conversations and to create safe spaces for women to speak 
breakup. T. Brian Joko has launched the hashtag End Domestic Silence Initiative in partnership with the feminist women's rights organization People Opposing Women Abuse of Power. To tell us more about this this initiative, we are joined on the line by activist and survivor of gender-based violence, Rosie Modene, who is also on the board of power. Rosie, good good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you so much. Now, Rosie, what do you make of the intense focus of gender-based violence in recent weeks? Um, Well, you know, the issue is that, you know, social media has its its positive and its negative connotations, but positive in in the fact that a lot of these cases are brought to the forefront and are highlighted, so people are more aware of them. In terms of the the rise of gender-based violence, it's not a new phenomenon. Power started 40 years ago, so in 1979, we already had a crisis. And over the years, we saw our government creating new policies and, and, and laws that are protecting women, such as the sexual offences laws, such as the domestic violence law 22 of 1989. And so when, when corporate comes to the table because they see the, 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 the need to, 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 to put their weight behind such an important issue, we obviously welcome it. And I just need to say that the, that the hashtag in domestic silence is actually more of a campaign as opposed to just a hashtag. It's been in, in, the, in, the, in the running for about a year and a half with Joker and Power, where they needed to understand and unpack the, the, the logistics, the myths and misconceptions around abuse, around, um, around getting um, support, what's needed in the sector, and why so many, so many victims don't get the help that they're needing. So, so with, 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 with this, it's about creating safe spaces where women can speak out because a lot of the time, people within their own communities cannot speak out. They're not safe in their homes. They're not safe in their villages. They're not safe in their companies and so forth. So we need to create these spaces where you have the opportunity to either get counseling, to speak out, if need be, get the, the safety and shelter that you needed, um, so that, and also become, and become empowered through, through financial um, empowerment, through emotional emotional, psychological and physical um, support so that you, you, you don't have to go back to your abusive partner. Now, Rosie, you've just touched on a very um, big issue, the campaign, End yeah. Domestic Silence. And this, as you say, has been going on for a year now. Why, why is it so difficult for the country, um, government, for people, just ordinary people in the streets to you know, deal with uh, gender-based gender-based violence and and sort of focus on it. Why does it have to? Um, do people have to go through certain things, or for people, yes. young women to lose their lives, or young children having been raped and having to to testify? Where um, these are things that we shouldn't really be dealing with. Yeah. Well, the thing is, and why we focus on on the terminology gender-based violence is that it's not a woman's problem. And for centuries, it's always been, oh, well, that's just a woman's issue. We'll deal with it that way. Um, and, and the problem with that is that because a lot of the, the ideologies, policies, laws, and so forth, have always come from a patriarchal ideology. So that's one of the reasons is because we're also, you know, our terminology, our, our understanding of what happens when somebody gets raped. You know, for a long time, there's that secondary victimization or the victim and or, or victimizing the actual survivor or, 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 or victim as opposed to putting the blame on the perpetrator. So you've seen slogans of where people say, well, um, why didn't she speak out? Or, well, she was drunk. Well, she was wearing a mini. 
um, you've got to look at the context of, 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 of first of all, our, our, our different demographic areas. And, and, and we also need to, to accept the, 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 the fact that a lot of these communities, villages, corporates, homes, societies, um, um, across the board, doesn't matter whether you're white, black, pink, or purple, a lot still follow patriarchal ideology. So women don't have the space to, 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 to speak up and be heard and to be, to be taken seriously. So that's why the end domestic silence is because a lot of people say, well, you know, um, for, for years it's been happening, why don't you speak out? If you can't speak out in your home, you're not going to be able to speak out anywhere else. So we've got to, we've got to create that, 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 um, philosophy and, and mindset of that, that when somebody does speak out, you need to hear them and you need to believe them. Now, what goes through your mind as a survivor of uh, GBV and seeing everything that's taken place, the loss of life um, and, and on a continuous basis? I mean, mm. I think it was on Thursday or Friday where a young woman was raped by five, five men um, and they were calling it corrective rape. Yeah. Well, well, the thing is, you know, I, what, to answer your question in terms of what goes through your mind, everybody is different and trauma attacks your body in various ways. So, you know, for a long time, I mean, with my physical abuse, I blamed myself for many, many years thinking, well, I deserve for him to hit me. But then once I got educated on abuse, realizing that although I came from a privileged background, I still was on an education on what my rights were. So it's dealing with that on that level. But also trauma attacks you in, in so many different ways that you cannot control. There's something called post-traumatic stress disorder, which then leads to other factors of depression, fibromyalgia, and wanted one. Uh, suicide thoughts and all of these different things that, that are all attributed to this. So we, we can't just pinpoint one just reason um, as to, okay, well, when, when this happens, this victim is going to go through that. You know, um, we've had many cases where the, the survivor or the victim has, has, hasn't been able to scream up or scream when, when the rape was happening or the abuse was happening because it's a shock to the system. You know, and, and, and with the cases that are coming up, you know, those type of cases, if you go to our, 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 our offices, if you go to our safe houses, those cases are coming in by the numbers. You know, it's not just once or one or two isolated cases. This has been happening for a very, very long time. On a daily basis. Yeah, across, mm. and, across, and, I, and I have to emphasize that you know, people say, well, you know, we need to put money into townships and so forth. Abuse is happening in white homes. It's happening in colored homes. It's happening in Indian homes. It's happening in same-sex relationships. It's happening in G, GNC relationships. You know, it's just it is across the board. And, it, and it's, not, it's not just a hashtag. It's, we're in a crisis. Now, you participated at the shutdown at uh, the JSC, which is the country's heart of the economy, Santon, Maud yeah. Street. Um, now, just uh, given that this was one of many marches that took place in the country, um, what does it give you hope, the fact that uh, um, the JSC CEO um, eventually had to come out and address the protesters and uh, to say, listen, we're going to look at this and we're going to um, communicate and, and have discussions with the leaders of, of the protest marches and, and see how we can play a part and take part in this? You know, I think, I mean, it, yes, she came out, but she was aware that we were coming. And she was aware that of the letter that was going to be handed over. Um, I think their response could have been prepared a little bit better. But I think this is also just another platform where 
um, financial and corporate sectors realize that, that they need to do something. And that's what is so important about going back to this partnership that we've had with Unilever, is that they're one of the leading corporates, in my opinion, who are not just popping up during Women's Month or 16 Days of Activism saying, well, let's have a tea party and we're doing our CSI. They spent an hour, a, year, a year and a half with our staff, with our counselors, understanding and unpacking what, 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 what abuse was and seeing where they could add value with the work that they're doing. Hence, they created the hashtag in domestic silence. So what better way to, in a domestic situation, is, is uh, uh, going back to, to, to the history of what women do, um, um, well, 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 you know, in terms of communities that are going to be sitting and talking around, tea is usually part of the conversation. If there's a funeral, you offer tea. If somebody comes over to visit you in the afternoon, you offer tea. So let's create these conversations because these are, these are the spaces that we need to have these, these, these honest conversations. But also more importantly, because we, as women, we've been fighting this, but as also as uh, the older generational woman, because they, had, they didn't have a proper voice to speak out, we need to change that, 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 that cycle and we need to change that ideology. So, so in terms of what happened with JSC, yes, they, I, I believe that the CEO could have done a lot more, but I think it was also just another um, platform to prove that actually it's not just a bunch of small activists who have been saying this for 40 years. The country is bleeding. You know, somebody said we're at the point where the pot, the, 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 the pot is boiling and, and the lid is about to fall off. No, um, it's, it's fallen off. It's fallen off the stove. The house is burning. The, the village is burning. Now, President Cyril Ramaphosa has called an extraordinary joint sitting of parliament um, for this coming Wednesday and uh, to discuss mainly the scourge of gender-based violence. What do you think the yeah. president should be addressing, especially considering that uh, um, the arms of, uh, you know, justice, the policing, the mm. um, you know the, the the justice system, the magistrates. Some of these policies need to be changed. And yeah. in dealing with uh, GBV victims, as you, it is across the board from all races. Um, you know, from the youngest person to the eldest person. How do yeah. how do how does Parliament um, put together policies that will ensure that perpetrators are dealt with and that uh, this scourge is attacked from from, you know, a very young age. Somebody said that uh, um, little boys need to be taught how to be, uh, how to see young girls as their equals instead of how things have been done all, all these years where yeah. this is where things are going to start changing. Well, I think, I think first and foremost, I mean, the president was handed 24 demands last year at the Gender Summit, which activists created. So I think they need to relook those policies. But for me, the, the, the top four, and we were discussing this with, 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 with lawyers and within the gender-based space, is that during the World Cup, there, there was a number of different courts that were open just in case, just, just to curb criminality in case it was happening in the country. We need to have specific courses, uh, courts that are open up that are just dealing with gender-based violence issues. We need to have stronger policies and an and attitude towards police who are not following proper protocol. They always go back and say, well, maybe they need more training. If you go into any police station, protocol is written on the wall of what, what things are supposed to be done. In many of the cases, cases are, are, are thrown out of court or, or evidence goes missing and it starts at the police level. 
we also need we also need proper intervention from a judicial point of view of, of the actual conviction rate and then a higher conviction sentencing. You know, people are calling for the death penalty, which in my personal opinion, I don't agree with because we're already having a lapse and we're having a, a bottleneck um, at the police station. We also need, we need an intervention in terms of the forensics. There's such a backlog in terms of the rape kits and forensics that, that cases, it can take years before a case gets to court because they, they haven't even gone through the forensics. So those are, those are starting points. With the, and, and the president knows this. You know, these are these are issues that he's been dealt with. These are the issues that he's been sent to from memorandum to memorandum from different marches and so forth. But, you know, the fact that after the gender summit, um, he said that he realized that the country's in a crisis, yet money was not put aside for gender-based violence issues. And the, re- and the importance of us going to the JSC on, on Friday was that it cost the state a lot of money for when survivors have to use state resources um, because of gender-based violence-related issues. So whether it's the police, whether it's the hospital, whether it is flying squad take them out of, 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 of abusive situation, the rape kits, the, the post-prophylaxis um, exposure medication that is taken, which you need to take 72 hours after being raped. All of these different things need to be taken into consideration and, 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 and finance needs to be made available for it. Rosie, I wish we could take this further, but we have run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. And I guess we'll be watching how the parliament sitting um, goes on Wednesday. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. And of course, the hashtag is in domestic silence. Thank you so much, Rosie. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's Rosie Mutene, board member of the Feminist Women's Rights Organization, People Opposing Women Abuse, joining us on the line. It is 7.45 and our economics update up next with Tabi Solohoku. Good morning. Almost 50,000 General Motors workers have been called out on strike this morning in the U.S. after the car giant failed to reach a pay and conditions deal with the United Auto Workers Union. UAW Vice President Terry Dittes told reporters in Detroit that this was the last resort. They had set a Saturday night deadline for an agreement to be reached. The strike is the first GM America's biggest car maker since 2007. Oil prices have risen sharply at the opening of the markets after Saturday's attack on two Saudi Arabia's oil facilities, which caused a big drop in oil output. Brent crude initially rose by nearly 20% to its highest price in four months. Saudi Arabia said it would make sure there wouldn't be any shortages. The BBC's Karishma Vasani reports. The coordinated attacks on Saudi Arabia's oil installations have knocked out half of the kingdom's production. That amounts to 5% of the world's supplies. The attacks have highlighted the vulnerability of Saudi Arabia's plants, a key pillar of the global energy infrastructure. It's not clear when the kingdom's oil production will be fully operational again, but Saudi Arabia has said it could use its stockpiles to help shore up supplies. And President Trump has tweeted that he would authorize the use of oil from America's emergency reserve. 
The European Union has warned of a real threat to security in the Middle East after Saudi Arabia oil facilities were targeted in drone attacks. The EU has called for maximum restraint. Iran has dismissed the U.S. allegations that it was responsible for two drone attacks which drastically cut oil production in Saudi Arabia. Mike Pompeo's accusation against Iran, delivered in a tweet yesterday, has drawn a sharp Iranian response. The Foreign Minister Javad Zarif called the U.S. deceitful. A spokesman said Mr. Pompeo's comments were blind and futile. A senior commander in Iran's Revolutionary Guards also issued a warning, saying American bases and aircraft carriers were within range of Iranian missiles. The Saudi authorities have yet to blame anyone for yesterday's dramatic pre-dawn explosions, but officials have linked them to attacks on oil tankers in the Gulf earlier this year, attacks widely believed to be the work of Iran. The Eswatini National Pension Fund has been granted 25% shares of MedScheme Eswatini. This was disclosed by Financial Services Regulatory Authority CEO Sandy Lamini. Lamini says there was another 20% available for a local entity. He, however, stated that the shares were only available to an organization and not individuals. Experts in Nigeria's built environment have asked the government at all levels to consider urban renewal as a major step in curbing the problem of building collapse in the country. They stated that the problem of building collapse was shameful for a country like Nigeria. They noted that the government had been encouraging slum development and in turn a building collapse by failing to invest in urban regeneration. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.99 Nigerian Nara, 1071 Botswana Pula, 102.40 Kenyan Shilling, and 1313 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 48 Brazilian roll, 6434 Russian ruble, 1790 Indian rupee, 77 Chinese yuan, and at 14.55 to the South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 79 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold $1,502. Platinum $946 per ounce. Brand crude $66.20 a barrel. From an African perspective. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. We're saving off with tennis news. South Africa wrapped up the Davis Cup Europe Africa Group H tie at the Kelvin Grove Club in Cape Town, winning all the matches on the final day against Bulgaria to finish 4-1 winners in the tie. Doubles pair Raven Klassen and Ruan Rolofs beat Alexander Lazarov and Alexander Dunsky 6-3 and 6-2 to get the South Africans to the perfect start before Lloyd Harris wrapped up the tie with a 6-3, 7-6 win over Dimitar Guzmanov. While the scoreline suggests an easy win, Raven Klassen says it was a tricky match against Lazarov and Dunsky. 
In athletics, Kenyan runners were the winners of both the men's and women's races at the Cape Town Marathon, Africa's only gold status marathon. Edwin Kibet Koech won the men's race in a time of 2 hours, 9 minutes and 2.0 seconds, while Celestine Chepchichir smashed the course record to win in 2 hours, 26 minutes and 4.4 seconds. Speaking after the race, Koech says he was happy with the race and really enjoyed the course. This race is very good. I see the course not bad. It is some small, small slopes, but I really enjoyed. Okay, I come with my my friend. It is supporting me to come together. But when I am reach 40, I still see it is very strong. When I am coming until 41, I still push it, and I win. Meanwhile, Elrod Gallant finished fourth to claim the South African Championship title, while Cornelia Jube claimed the women's South Africa's marathon title. Helland, rushing just his second marathon, said overall he is happy with his time. Overall, yeah, I can be happy with a sub-211 on a marathon, you know, my second one, yeah. Yeah, at halfway I was still feeling fresh, you know, and I told myself just a few kilometers still left and, I've, and I really felt good in my legs. Um, I think as we approached 34 kilometer, 35 kilometer mark, heading straight into the wind, I felt it a little, um, but yeah, the guys just pulled away and I saw one of the Kenyans, they were hitting a 2.59, you know, going into the wind and I think that's where the XB dropped me. And finally, with swimming news, the final day of the World Para Swimming Championships concluded with another African record for South Africa's Christian Sadi. In the final of the S7 50-meter freestyle, Sadi posted a new Africa record of 29.10 seconds to finish the event in sixth place. While the gold went to the Ukraine's Adri Trusov in a new world record time of 27.07 seconds. During the day, six of the competition yesterday and the 4x100-meter mixed freestyle relay team of Alani Ferreira, Henry Herbst, Franco Smith and Cornel Leach successfully qualified for the finals of the race and finished in 8th place with a time of 4 minutes 17.22 seconds. While Ferreira also participated in the heats of the SM13 100m butterfly where she managed a 6th place finish in 1 minute 23.12 seconds. Gabelo Zwane also took to the water in the S6 50m butterfly heats and finished 6th in 36.21 seconds. The World Para Swimming Championships were held in the same venue as the London 2012 Paralympics and were a crucial qualifier for the Tokyo 2020 Games. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, African leaders hail Zimbabwe's former President Robert Mugabe and South Africa's President deploy special envoys to African countries. 
That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzora Magadza and Tutungobeni, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is AKA featuring Yanga with a song titled Jiga. i
flash before your eyes. In a girl like you, I see my own design. Long from you, I used to go, 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 I used to go,